Hello and welcome to this download from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is John Carey, author of The Authorised Biography of William Golding, as the subtitle puts it, The Man Who Wrote Lord of the Flies. In fact, as this book makes clear, Golding was much more besides, and in fact came to resent the way in which his first novel eclipsed the rest of his output, even though its success, its sales can be measured in tens of millions, enabled him to give up teaching, a job which he hated. Robert Harris, reviewing this biography, called it learned, witty, insightful and humane, a model of its kind. The perfect invitation, in fact, to rediscover Golding's work, which has experienced a period of comparative neglect in the sixteen years since the author's death. The Golding who emerges from the pages of this book may be a flawed human being, full of fears and anxieties, prone to drinking. But, Carey argues, he was also an author of major and enduring stature. In order to write this biography, Carey was granted access to the Golding archive, so I began by asking him to tell me what he had found there. I'm very lucky in that the archive, the family archive, was really sort of handed over to me to read in toto, and there is this journal which he kept every day from 1971 till he died, 22 years. I think I have never... Well, I'm sure I've never had an experience like that of getting to know a writer so intimately and he's discussing writing the books, you know, the later books. He, he is each day working at them and saying how impatient he is, how disappointed he is, how he's going to throw this away and change that. Astonishing to see art being, as it were, produced in front of your eyes. And the private papers are astonishing, not only the journal, but also a work called Men, Women and Now, where he wrote, he wrote it for Anne in the 1960s, about 65, I think, describing his relations with women right from the start, his mother right the way through. It was a kind of exploration of why he found it difficult to write about women. Then there's also an autobiography, actually, a frag- fragmentary autobiography called Scenes from a Life. When he heard that there were people, including me, who wanted to write his biography, which he was not keen on. Uh, he told Charles Monteith that um, he would write one himself, so he started Scenes from Alive. I know that because the letters that passed between him and Charles for 40 years are all in the Faber archive, hundreds of letters. And again, an amazing insight like they give into how he wrote, what he thought of what he wrote. He discussed it very frankly with Charles who was brilliantly I mean both encouraging discriminating and when necessary was a very firm editor we probably come back to that relationship because I think it's a very interesting relationship that comes out in the biography I, I just wanted to stay with his more intimate writings for a moment though and in those he comes across as highly self-critical he describes himself as a monster on occasions he says things like he could imagine himself having been a Nazi if he'd lived in, in Nazi Germany. And he talks about his nightmares. But what do you think made him such an acutely self-critical character? It's hard to say. It began in the war, I think. It was being, I think, in an air raid on Portsmouth. He was in this appalling air raid. And he found himself, <laughs> nice, toward me, asking himself which of his friends he would sacrifice, as it were, in theory, 
in order to be out of this air raid. Who in the world would he not sacrifice? And he in, in the end, he decides only Anne and David. David was born in 1940. He wouldn't sacrifice. That kind of self-examination seems to me to have become quite habitual later on. That's the first example of it. So you find him, I mean the most, I find, searing you know, example of it is a manuscript that hasn't got a title, which he wrote about David. David had a terrible breakdown in 1969, age 29, and never entirely recovered, and I think Golding realised he wouldn't. So he set out to examine, in quite a short manuscript, his relations with David, what had gone wrong. He remembers that when David was born with a club foot, he felt sort of horror and kind of shame, as if he had joined the sort of disabled people. So, I mean, it's the kind of thing I'm sure people feel. I'm sure I would feel. But how many people would admit it to themselves and examine themselves like that? And then he remembers coming back from the Navy during the war on leave. I suppose David would be about four. And having a pillow fight with him. And how he deliberately, repeatedly knocked him over, meaning to hurt him. Again, you know... And fathers do feel jealous of sons, it's known. How many admit something like that to themselves? So I think the habit of self-examination... He does it again in... Um, the, the first book he wrote, 1947, was called Seahorse, about a holiday. He went on with Anne and the children. I mean, of course, David, uh, old enough to know what's happening, but Judy, just a baby... And he talks about how angry he gets with David and how he notices himself sort of deliberately getting angry, sort of escalating his anger deliberately. Very, very self-examining. So it becomes a, a habit. When he says, as you just noticed, um, that he would have been a Nazi, well, I don't personally believe he would have been a Nazi. He had an extremely keen critical intelligence. I don't think you needed that to be a Nazi. In any way, he was an extremely sensitive man, an extremely fearful man. The, the word fear recurs again and again through the book. He seems to have spent a lot of his life afraid of, of various things, within and without. Yeah, in the end, I concluded that fear was the most habitual emotion, really. On a scale from anxiety, which he felt all the time, anxiety about money, anxiety about writing. He was terrified of writing. Um, anxiety, of course, about what the critics would say. He was deeply, deeply hurt by bad reviews. But escalating into terror, often terror at the supernatural, he did believe, he says, that the dead walked. And he says that if he was in a room alone at night... Even if the light was on, he was terrified at being alone and he would rush upstairs and snuggle down beside Anne and hear her breathing and feel safe. And he's a grown man, ex-naval officer, extremely courageous man, no doubt about that. If only you have a look at his war record. But that was what he was like and it went very deep and it was part of his distrust of the rational, of logic. Ultimately, he didn't really believe in reason and logic. He believed in imagination, which was true for him. Another of his anxieties was about class. He, he went to Marlborough Grammar School 
And he had Marlborough College as something to measure himself against. And he went to Brasenose College, Oxford, as the only grammar school student in an intake of, of more than 70. And one senses throughout the book this sort of distance from the establishment and, and sort of resentment about the establishment. Well, you know, I think that the class, the class consciousness is basic. And I think, as you say, it was, he says, that it was... It began in Marlborough with envy and hatred of these upper-class boys. Uh, it was certainly accentuated at Oxford, where he had almost no friends, four friends. Oxford was basically public school. Grammar school boys were an anomaly. And he knew, I'm sure, how he was regarded. How he was regarded appears in the appointments committee notes. They interviewed him about jobs in his last year and what the interviewer wrote was not quite a gentleman, that he would not be fit, he would be fit only for day school teaching, i.e. not for public school. Well, this class consciousness, I think, does actually get into the novels quite early. Um, I think it's there in the relationship between Piggy and the other boys in Lord of the Flies. Once class is there, you don't regard a person as a person, but as a member of uh, upper, higher or lower caste, as it were. So I think, if you think of um, rites of passage and the relationship between Talbot and Collie, it almost seems to me that it's um, a replay of the class conflict he had felt at Marlborough, Talbot, of course, representing the Marlborough College class, and Collie from the lower middle class, and Talbot finding that he is wrong, wrong about Collie, that Collie, whom he despised for his obsequiousness and his lower class manners, is more sensitive than he is, more liberated than he is. There's been a, a great media interest in the fact that your biography writes about an attempted rape, an alleged attempted rape, which... Golding described of a 15-year-old girl in Marlborough when he was a, a student. Can you tell me what, what was going on and, and what you think the importance of this was in, in Golding's psyche? Yeah, Golding um, describes this in the work called Men, Women and Now that he wrote for his wife, for Anne, as a kind of confession and a kind of self-examination. And one of the factors in it, I think, is that he sees his earlier self up until the war as pretty abhorrent up until the war he was it's pretty clear an atheist he says so he was followed his father he was interested in science he was an atheist he was a materialist he was quite brutal he was keen on sport and so on in the war he says he had a, he underwent a religious convulsion hence of course the Simon stuff in Lord of the Flies. Now Dora Spencer as I have called her, it's not her real name of course because I thought I couldn't possibly put her real name, though it is there in uh, Memory and Now Dora was a girl at the school whom he thought very sexy she clearly admired him because he was cultured and so on and by the time they started to know each other. He was at Oxford in his first year. And in his first summer vacation from Oxford, he met her. She was 15. They went up onto Marlborough Common. They started to make love, or he started to make love to her. And she became frightened. I mean, she was prepared to sort of cuddle and kiss, but was frightened when he tried to touch her breasts and started to snivel and cry. And he shouted at her, you 
oh, shut up, you hold your noise, you little bitch, and so on, I'm not going to hurt you. So she howled, and he says that he blew her nose, and they walked down the hill and parted in silence. And he calls it an attempted rape. He says, oh, I, was unhand- I was so unhandy at rape. I think that he clearly was attempted rape, technically, but what impresses me is that he should call it so and blame himself so. And I think it's part of this self-examination process that he put himself through, and also a way of criticising what he had been like and what he had allowed himself to do in that first phase of his life. Lord of the Flies was his first published book, and I was struck by a quote you had in in the biography where where he says that authors don't take anything from previous authors apart from punctuation, essentially. He does say that. And I wondered where you thought that book came from. What fed that book for Golding? Several things, I think. One is that he wrote it as a kind of counter or anti-coral island. He says that it started, the idea started when he had been reading to the children. He and Anne were reading to the children at bedtime, the children had gone to bed, and he said, thinking of Coral Island, I bet I could write a novel about how children would really behave on an island, and Anne said, you get on with it. So that was one place that it began. It also surely, I think, began from observing children at um, Bishop Wordsworth's school, where he taught just before and then for years after the war. In one of the, one of the unpublished novels called Short Measure... It's about a school which is clearly Bishop Wordsworth's, and there's a scene in it where he describes the boys in a particularly, a more sort of educationally subnormal class, taunting and tormenting a woman teacher. It's a fantastic scene because of their their cunning and their mercilessness as they reduce her to tears. See, I think he knew that kind of thing. There's a story about how, again told by one of his ex-students about how the headmaster Happold once came into the class to quieten them down. They were all misbehaving when Golding was there and said you know, how Golding was a remarkable man and they thought should be ashamed of themselves and so on. I think he had, he, he had formed a view of what lay within boys, what capacity for cruelty they, they had, just from school teaching and observation. And some of the boys whom he taught, say they, that he would deliberately stir them up to sort of opposition, even that they, he, would, he would take them out to a prehistoric earthwork called Figsby Rings and divide them up into battle groups and put them one against the other. And he told an American audience that, you know, they almost killed him, almost, there was almost murder. I don't know whether he's exaggerating, of course it's hard to tell, but I mean, it's clear that he wouldn't have written Lord of the Flies if he hadn't been a schoolmaster for 15 years. I I said I wanted to come back to the relationship with Charles Monteith, his editor at Faber, and I wondered how central you thought that relationship was to making him the writer that he he turned out to be. I do really think it it was central. He learned things from Charles that related, first of all, just to Lord of the Flies, but he learned other things that related to his writing as a whole. He learned to be economical. When you look at the first the surviving manuscript of Lord of the Flies, 
and look at the typescript that Charles um, eventually got out of him, and indeed a typescript that's still got passages that Charles has crossed through, you can see, and Golding said later, you know, he taught him to be economical. He told him that you only had to imply and not to spell out. And I think that is traceable throughout his writing. What he wanted eventually was a kind of writing that would almost get beyond words to something that is more that closer to physical experience. That was a kind of ideal he had, and I think Charles helped him towards that. And that, I think he, that's in Pincher Martin, say, and the Inheritors gets towards that. Charles was also influential in that, as you know, what he did with Lord of the Flies was to cut out the supernatural element, to make the supernatural element implicit, just about, but not necessarily there. It may be as the book stands. You could read that book as a book about how religion is based on ignorance and fear. How how religion is you know, develops from ignorance and fear is no longer a god in it as there was when Golding wrote it. And I think, therefore, you could say that Charles taught him also to be ambivalent in that way. And all the later novels are, even the paper men, it may not be that there is any supernatural experience even there but as Golding started out he wanted to proclaim what he taught, he called a theophany he said to Charles Monteith surely there must be a theophany that is to say a showing forth of a god it was just what Monteith wanted to get rid of of course and interestingly I think right at the end of his life he was talking to an Indian audience an audience of Indian students and he said, and it's the only time he ever said it, that he thought he should not have given way over Simon. Do you think, John, that Golding has had a lasting influence in the English novel, or is he too much sui generis to, to beget heirs? I think that what he's had a lasting influence on is English culture more. I think there are some novelists, not many, who write a thing that becomes part of our culture. For example, Defoe's Robinson Crusoe, say, Stevenson's Treasure Island, I suppose, Orwell's 1984, Huxley's Brave New World. You know, you might say to someone who, who had heard of Robinson Crusoe, who wrote it, and they wouldn't know. Similarly, you can say to people I've tried who wrote Lord of the Flies, and they don't actually know it's Golding, but Lord of the Flies has become a part of the culture, a reference point. Only a couple of days ago in The Guardian, I noticed there was an article about the security staff at the American embassy in Afghanistan who had been committing sort of various atrocities upon each other, which was said to be like Lord of the Flies. You know, I think what he's done is to create that cultural reference point it is quite rare 